For over 20 years, Al Swearingen held court at the infamous Jim Saloon, a veritable hotbed of debauchery and crime in the violent boomtown of Deadwood. You stupid son of a bitch. Also referred to as a defiler of youth and destroyer of home ties, the gym was the perfect venue for Swearingen to peddle his vice. And make no mistake about it, the real Al Swearingen was much meaner than portrayed on HBO. So bear your hoople-headed cocksucking ears and tell your god to ready for blood. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. And pussy's half price next 15 minutes. Ellis Albert Swearingen and his twin brother Lemuel were born on July 8, 1845 near Oskaloosa, Iowa. Al's father Daniel, originally from Kentucky, made his way to Ohio in 1836 where he met and married Albert's mother Keziah. The lovebirds headed west to Iowa, settling in what's now Mahaska County, and started popping out babies, of which they'd have a grand total of eight. Now Daniel was a farmer by trade but would, interestingly enough, also serve as the Mahaska County Sheriff between the years 1853 and 1855. And I say interesting because his son, our topic du jour, Al Swearingen, wasn't exactly known as Mr. Law and Order. By 1856, the family sold their farm and moved into the nearby town of Oskaloosa, where the elder Swearingen dabbled in various business ventures. Everything from running a grocery store to selling real estate, operating a slaughterhouse, and even participating in extramarital activities with his sister-in-law. Oh boy. By 1869, Mr. Swearingen would leave Keziah, his wife of over 30 years, and move in with her much younger sister, forcing Al's mother to struggle to earn a living, possibly a contributing factor to Keziah's death a decade later at the relatively young age of 61. Not exactly the best of examples for Daniel to set for his sons, but by the time the family broke up, Al was in his early 20s and had already departed for greener pastures. Certainly can't fault him on that account, right? Outside of some big whitetail trophy bucks and equally as big corn-fed farm gals, Iowa don't exactly strike me as the type of place for a young man looking to stretch his wings. The exact details regarding Swearingen's first departure from Oskaloosa are unknown, but by the summer of 1866, a 21-year-old Al was residing in the boomtown of Virginia City, present-day Montana, where he and a man simply identified as Blackjack were arrested and fined for a quote-unquote breach of peace. No idea what they did, but I got a feeling this incident had something to do with the parting of a fool and his money. Now, if you listen to the recent series I did on Jim Bridger, link in the show notes, you may recall that Virginia City sprang up after gold was discovered in 1865. This was essentially Deadwood just a decade prior. A wild, mostly lawless boomtown rot smack dab in the middle of the frontier. To get to the mining camps of southwestern Montana, Swearingen would have likely taken either the Bozeman or Bridger trails braving the heart of Lakota and Northern Cheyenne Territory at a time when hostilities were really ramping up. Hell, the Fetterman fight, a crushing blow to the U.S. military, would occur just five months following Al's arrest. Now, as far as I can tell, nobody knows Swearingen's immediate whereabouts after that. When you operate on the fringes of society as he did, when your money is earned doing things that might cause an angry father or brother or jealous husband to cave your head in, you tend to move in the shadows. Al Swearingen weren't exactly keeping no diaries, and consequently, there are large chunks of his life that remain big, fat question marks. He may have returned home in 1871, per family lore, and convinced his twin brother Lemuel to return out west with him to California. 
The story goes that the pair spent two years in the Golden State before Lemuel had his fill and headed back to Oskaloosa. What exactly Al and his brother were up to in California is anyone's guess. I'm not sure if Swearingen ever did pan for gold himself, but by the time he reached the Black Hills of present-day South Dakota, he had certainly learned how to make that gold magically jump out of the ground and land directly into his pockets without touching a pickaxe or so much as breaking a sweat. Speaking of the Black Hills, in 1874, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, maybe you've heard of him, led over a thousand men, soldiers, and civilians into what's now eastern South Dakota and discovered what many suspected. There was gold in them thar hills. Prospectors soon came a-flocking, but there was a problem. The area legally belonged to the Lakota people, per treaty. That being the case, Custer was soon sent back in to evict the newly arrived miners, and many researchers do believe Swearingen was among this original group that were displaced. Undaunted, Al would return. After stocking up on the necessary provisions and whores in Cheyenne, Wyoming, Swearingen arrived again in the newly Christian Custer City in the fall of 1875. Upon arrival, Swearingen had a log building constructed, what some considered to be the original gym saloon, with cribs out back where his ladies plied their trade. And by early 1876, it's estimated that one out of every ten women in Custer City was under Al's employment. Now that sounds like a lot, but a reasonable guess as to how many women lived in Custer City in 1876 is around just 150. As such, Swearingen likely only employed around 14 or 15 working gals. His place was popular though. Al did a very brisk business with the local prospectors, as evidenced by revenue records that reveal Swearingen as the chief supplier of liquor to the camp. This would all change, of course, once gold was struck up there in Deadwood Gulch. Most of the miners in Custer City headed north, and Al followed, hoping to continue fleecing them of all that hard-earned dust. Now, I'm not telling you nothing that you don't already know, but there's two ways to make money in a boomtown like Deadwood. You can try your hand at prospecting, but let's face it, that's hit or miss, right? While some miners absolutely did strike it rich, most did not. The big winners were guys like Al, along with legitimate business owners, who sold goods and services to the prospectors and they stayed a whole hell of a lot more comfortable and safer doing so. This would be your mercantile stores, barber shops, livery stables, doctors, all that sort of stuff. Now, what Al Swearingen was supplying was a little different, but still very much in demand. He provided an escape from the drudgery of day-to-day -day life, a little entertainment mixed with some false hope. And buddy, business was a-booming. Now, let's say a man came into a bit of color through a day's worth of labor in a cold creek. He'd come to town, and if he had any sense, he'd first lay in for supplies. Maybe buy that new pair of boots he was desperately in need of, or stock up on some bacon and flour, maybe a new axe, or even a percolator. Sure as shit, though, he'd soon come looking for a place like Swearingen's joint. There, he would have his gold measured out, be extended house credit, and then offered a wide variety of Roth IRAs or 529 college savings plans, just as a way to ensure his money would be well invested. Swearingen would then sit the hard-working customer down and just give him a lecture on the prevention of various venereal diseases, the proper use of contraceptives, and finally, with a complimentary drink on the house, let the prospector know that, truth be told, abstinence is the only safe choice. No, of course not. You went to Al's saloon for a good time. Whether it be to get you drunk on, some female companionship, do a little bit of gambling, or just to take in a show. Al offered it all and he profited from it all. And yeah, he did accept payment in gold dust. Accordingly, that gold you spent on Swearingen's watered-down whiskey would go straight into his pockets. Likewise for any of the chippies you may have stuck your carrot into. 
That Pharaoh dealer, who even though you can't prove it, you know he was cheating, that went straight to Al Swearingen as well. Like I said earlier, guys like Al figured out a way to make that gold magically fly out of the river and land snugly into their well-guarded coffers. And Swearingen didn't exactly follow the most stringent of moral codes while doing so. Now, when Al followed that money up to Deadwood, he did not bring his dozen or so soiled doves with him. Not all of them, at least. Not sure what happened, but when Al finally did appear in Deadwood in May of 1876, he did so with just two working gals, the famous Calamity Jane Cannery and an equally as rough around the edges Kitty Arnold. Now, Kitty was a lot like Jane in many respects. She drank, used foul language, chewed tobacco, and often dressed in men's buckskins. Unlike Calamity, however, Kitty cleaned up far better and, by all accounts, was a very good-looking woman. And yeah, both she and Calamity Jane turned tricks for Al Swearingen, along with Al's own poor, long-suffering wife, Nettie. There was also a fourth, shall we say, draw, to Al's saloon referred to in one Deadwood paper as a, quote, boy dressed in feminine garb, corseted and padded. The same article goes on to say that the lad, quote, proved as much of a success at selling wine as any of the women, end quote. Sounds like a specialty act. But yeah, it was with this curious menagerie of talent that Al first struck Deadwood. He arrived on a Monday, and by that Saturday, he already had a new dance hall up and running, dubbed the Cricket Saloon. Just a wood-framed, canvas-wrapped affair, the Cricket nonetheless proved a popular watering hole, especially with the various prize fights and exhibition acts that Swearingen was known to provide the patrons. In fact, so popular was the cricket that when Al was arrested by a U.S. Marshal out of Yankton, a mere month after arriving, the good townsfolk of Deadwood saw to it that he was set free muy pronto. The arresting officer, Marshal Burdick, not Bullock, Burdick, initially came to fetch Al for the crime of illegally selling spirits back there in Custer City. Turns out the incarceration would be extremely short-lived. In Marshal Burdick's own words, quote, I certify that in Deadwood, in my district, on the 20th day of June, 1876, I arrested the within-named defendant, Al Swearingen, and that he was afterwards rescued from me by the citizens of the locality, end quote. Now, this is just me speaking, but when I hear stuff like this, my mind always kind of wanders. Hmm, is that true? Did Marshall Burdick really arrest Swearingen, only to have him rescued by the populace of Deadwood? Or did the marshal show up and, not liking the look of that big fucking knife Al had at the ready, just return back to Yankton with a story to tell? Or did Swearingen slip the marshal an envelope, if you get my drift? A little bribey bribe. This is all 100% speculation on my part, but still fun to think about. Some tells me that Al was well-versed when it came to greasing those palms. Marshal Burdick, of course, would go on to be the man who hung the infamous Jack McCall nearly a year later. Speaking of which... I did make a statement, half-jokingly, in my series on Wild Bill Hickok that there was no word on whether or not Wild Bill ever played poker in that cocksucker Al Swearingen's joint the gym. I stand by this statement. Nonetheless, there is evidence that Hickok turned a few cards over there at the cricket. Even a confused Jack McCall would erroneously tell interrogators in Cheyenne that he murdered Hickok inside of the cricket, which he didn't, but... Still, this confusion would at least suggest that while Bill was known to frequent the establishment, the famous Jim Saloon wouldn't open up until April of 1877, some eight months after Hickok went under. And Swearingen's main motivation in the Jim's construction was the recently arrived competition directly across the thoroughfare known as the Bella Union. HBO's Cy Tolliver, as depicted by the excellent Powers Booth, did not exist in real life, but Tom Miller certainly did. 
And when Tom Miller showed up in the mining camp, he announced that his establishment, the Bella Union, was to be a fancy two-story get-up, complete with private boxes and balconies and such. And Al couldn't stand it. He quickly hired an architect of his own to design and build a variety theater to rival the Bella Union, at which point it became a race to see who'd open up first. Swearingen won out, debuting the slightly smaller gym variety theater a solid two months before them Bella Union cocksuckers. And the gym really was a true variety theater. You can still go there and wet your whistle, among other things, and you can still gamble away your future, but the entertainment aspect was kicked up several notches. In addition to the usual prize fights, whores, and wrestling matches, patrons could now enjoy a wide array of singers, comedians, dancers, and acrobats. Hell, even Red Cloud, yeah, that Red Cloud, would perform there in the summer of 1880. Now, more on the gym's various attractions in a bit, but for now, let's talk about Al Swearingen the man. The real Al Swearingen, as opposed to the one portrayed on the excellent HBO drama Deadwood. Al would have only been in his early 30s in 1877, a far cry from actor Ian McShane's 62 years of age when HBO's Deadwood premiered in March of 2004. Furthermore, in the series, Swearingen is hinted at being from jolly old England, at least at the very beginning, as well as being the child of a prostitute who spent his youth in a Chicago orphanage. As we've thus far seen, none of that was accurate. By the way, if you haven't already seen Deadwood, <sighs> I can't help you. There will be spoilers throughout this entire episode, and there will be many more comparisons, but do yourself a favor, give it a watch. I go back and forth on whether or not Deadwood is the greatest television show of all time. Uh, if it's not, it's a very close second to The Sopranos. Don't ever come up to me talking about Yellowstone or Breaking Bad if you have never seen Deadwood. They don't even compare. Now, many of the characters in Deadwood were real-life people. Al Swearingen, obviously. Seth Bullock, Saul Starr, Wild Bill Hickok, Calamity Jane. They're all featured on the show, and even though it takes place in the very real old west town of Deadwood... I'm not sure it can accurately be labeled a Western. I don't know what it is, other than just the height of art as far as I'm concerned. Just an FYI, Deadwood can be more than a little colorful as far as the language goes. Sort of like Shakespeare, if Shakespeare frequently peppered his prose with a strong dose of cocksuckers and motherfuckers. As such, this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza may be a little more profane than others, in which case just consider it a throwback to the old days of Bloody Beaver. Now, in the series, Al does come off as more of a mob boss than a simple saloon owner. Ian McShane's Al Swearingen had his hands literally in everything, from the selling of empty lots to peddling opium, sending road agents out to the hills to rob the hoopleheads, and he even kept Mr. Wu's pigs at the ready to dispose of any dead bodies. I'm not sure how close to reality this was, though. I found no historical evidence of Swearingen being associated with road agents, I'm not aware of him profiting from the sale of narcotics. I don't know that he controlled any plots of land other than where his saloon stood. And it doesn't really look like he was necessarily the boss of Deadwood's underbelly, if there even was one. That said, he certainly had it in him. Back in Custer City, for instance, all the town hall meetings were held in his saloon. Not sure if this was due to Al's manipulation or just a lack of similar venues. There's no doubt that Al was a very rough customer, as you'll soon hear. But I also never came across any accounts of swearing killing anyone or even ordering anyone's death. I think mostly Al was just a very morally corrupt opportunist. He saw an opportunity in these boom towns like Custer City and Deadwood, and he seized upon it, even if that meant exploiting many people along the way. Now, once again, if you don't mind, I'll use HBO's Deadwood as a comparison. 
The fictional Al Swearingen is a very bad man, especially in the beginning of the series, spoiler alert, when he orders the murder of a young child. We see Al personally murder people with his own hand, beat his employees, and profit from death at every turn. However, as the series progress, Swearingen becomes a lot more likable. I know that sounds weird to say, but they show his human side, his black heart begins to warm just a tad, and by the end, he's almost endearing. You're rooting for him. Hell, I'd go so far as to say that Al's the hero of the entire series. And this is probably the main departure from reality when it comes to the real Al Swearingen. At no point while researching this guy did I find anything redeeming or feel any sympathy. He just took advantage of too many damn people. I mean, sure, he didn't have a staff of professional and talented writers to spin his story like those who work for HBO. But remember, we're talking about a man who pimped out his own wife. And that's when he wasn't beating the living shit out of her. Al would be arrested more than once for spousal abuse with one local paper reporting that his wife Nettie was a, quote, pitiable sight, both eyes being blacked and her face pounded almost to jelly, end of quote. And if that's how he treated his bride, one can only assume he didn't exactly handle his employees with kid gloves either, especially the females. And let's not forget his underhanded ways of employing said women. Swearingen would often place ads in newspapers in cities far away, looking to hire a waitress or a cook or what have you. The women would show up in Deadwood, some of them spending their last penny just to get there, expecting a legitimate job, only for Al to turn them out to whoring basically what we now refer to as human trafficking. Now, there are two somewhat verified photos of the man. I don't believe they are 100% verified, but there's one of the interior of the gym saloon with a man believed to be Al standing behind the bar. There's another with what appears to be the same guy sitting in a buggy just outside of the gym. In both photos, he's very well-dressed in a three-piece suit with his dark hair slicked back. And by the way, that slicked back hair thing was not just a fashion statement. This was pretty common for boomtown bartenders who were often measuring out small portions of gold dust. Particles would invariably be stuck to their fingers, which they'd then run through that oily hair. Al was no different, and after every shift, he'd simply wash out the minuscule gold flakes from his hair, and voila, money in the bank. You ain't gonna get rich doing this, but hey, one Deadwood bartender claimed to have earned 10 bucks a night with this method, or nearly 300 in today's money, so not too shabby. And some tells me the Swearingen likely made his employees also wash their hair before clocking out for the night. Now, Al does not appear to have been a particularly tall man, and by the looks of it, he enjoyed a little bit too much of his own whiskey supply. But you don't survive decades in these rough boom towns without knowing how to take care of yourself. Al Swearingen was known to personally eject patrons of the gym, sending them out into the muck of the thoroughfare with a few new bruises. Even some who were armed. There's at least one incident where an old boy came to the theater with a gun and told Swearingen to likewise get healed. Al replied that he didn't need no fucking pistol and proceeded to beat the brakes off the man. I found another occasion where someone entered the gym and aimed a shotgun at Al but was quickly disarmed and quote, sent home to bed, end quote. Whatever that means. Doesn't sound too good. Other than those two photos, all we have to go by as far as Al's physical appearance comes from an early citizen of Deadwood who claimed that he was dark and low-browed with the face and character of a villain, which is certainly depicted on the HBO series. Now, earlier I mentioned how Swearingen only had two women working for him when he first arrived in Deadwood. Well, three and a half if you count his wife and that ladyboy. But by the time the gym debuted, he had several more in his employee. 
Most of them lure to the gym under false pretenses, as I've already mentioned, and not really living the best of lives. As usual, when the topic of prostitution in the Old West comes up, I do feel somewhat obligated to describe the nasty reality of the situation. Unlike in most of the movies, this was not a glamorous job. The vast majority of these working gals were destitute, oftentimes addicts of one variety or another, and were rarely able to make any real money for themselves before dying early of either suicide, overdose, or disease. Syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and more all wrecked havoc on these ladies. Not to mention the botched abortions and, of course, just good old-fashioned murder. Then you got the ick factor of the whole thing, right? I'm not sure if you're aware, but most folks did not bathe on a regular basis back in the late 19th century. Imagine for a moment that you're one of Swearingen's girls. You close your eyes and you try to pretend that you're anywhere else, but it's no use. So you do what you're supposed to do and pull your skirt up and hope that this one's as quick as the last. You hear a rustling sound behind you as the John drops his britches and a rancid stench invades your nostrils. The usual mix of stale whiskey, body odor, and a mouth that has never known a toothbrush. Your eyes still closed as you feel a tobacco-crusted beard tickle the side of your neck, followed by a grunt as the stranger forces his way inside you, those dirty fingernails digging into your hips. You struggle to hide your disgust, knowing full well that if you don't put on a good show, you're bound to feel that customer's fist hammer the side of your skull. Or worse, he'll complain to Al. Thankfully, it's finished fairly quickly as the John mumbles an apology and scurries away without making eye contact. They never do seem to make eye contact when it's over. Not that you really pay much attention anymore, as all you can think about nowadays is if you got enough time to tie one on before the next customer. After all, you can never be too numb for this line of work. Rinse and repeat. Now, I'm sure some of you weirdos just got a little turned on, but I think most of us can agree that this sounds like a fucking nightmare. Oh, and by the way, no deodorant, no toothpaste, no manscape, and no condoms. Not quite as glamorous as Westworld, right? And me personally, I don't see the appeal of being the customer. First of all, these women were not spreading their legs because they liked you. And even if they did, it's not like they were bathing every day themselves either. Sloppy seconds? This is more like sloppy dozens. Something tells me oral sex probably wasn't very popular back in them days. Now, one thing I was unable to determine was how much of a moneymaker prostitution was for Swearingen. Were the girls a large part of his income or just an incentive to draw customers into the gym and keep them there? Speaking of prostitution and income, let's take a moment to hear from this episode's sponsors. Alright, welcome back. As far as money goes, it's claimed by some that when the gym was really booming, Al was earning anywhere from five to $10,000 per night. Of course, that's including all the gambling, drinks, food, and entertainment. But still, that's a lot of damn money. Now, I have no way of verifying if these figures are true, but at just the low end, at $5,000 per night, that comes out to nearly $150,000 in today's money. Assuming that the gym was open seven days a week, we're talking over $50 million per year in today's money. That's more than double what the most popular clubs in New York City currently bring in per year. And I do find it somewhat unbelievable that Swearingen was making that kind of dough. Let's pretend that someone was stretching the truth and Al was just earning $5,000 per week as opposed to per day. That's still like raking in $7.5 million a year nowadays. Either way you cut it, the man was making a lot of fucking money. Then again, can't no amount of scratch stop your place from going up in flames. 
especially not when you have a kerosene-fueled marquee hanging off the front of your all-wood establishment. It was only a matter of time before such a contraption malfunctioned, and sure enough, on the night of July 10, 1877, the gym was going up in smoke. Fortunately, what passed for the Deadwood Fire Department was able to put the flames out before it did much damage. Two years later, however, this luck would not hold. The Great Fire of 1879 began in a bakery on Deadwood Sherman Street and quickly spread to a nearby hardware store, causing the kegs of blasting powder to ignite and do what they were meant to do. Kabloom! The resulting inferno saw nearly 300 buildings burned to the ground, the Jim Variety Theater among them. The indomitable Al Swearingen was unfazed, immediately began rebuilding, and by late November of that same year, the Jim 2.0 had its grand opening. Even bigger and better than before, with 30-foot ceilings, 19 private boxes, and even a wine room. Per Deadwood historian Jerry Bryant, if you were to walk into the gym, you'd immediately find yourself in the saloon portion, with a bar and tables and chairs, along with the poker and faro stations. If you continued on, you'd pass into the theater portion, with a stage up front and rows of seats with the private rooms or boxes suspended on either side. Credit where credit's due. Al did have a lot of new talent coming in constantly. As previously mentioned, everything from trapeze acts to legitimate actors, even comedians, all graced the stage of the Jim Variety Theater. Still, though as fancy as the place may have been, Swearingen was a crook through and through. And legitimate income notwithstanding, Al wasn't above pulling a con or three or four. One favorite scheme of his was to hold bogus charity events. I guess there wasn't exactly a strong church congregation present in Deadwood in those early days, so if someone fell on hard times, there would often be benefits held at the local saloons. Al caught on to this rather quickly and began hosting more of these so-called benefits than any other establishment in town. Once again, according to Deadwood historian Jerry Bryant, it's unclear if anyone but Swearingen ever benefited from them. By the way, I will bring up Mr. Bryant more on this episode, and for good reason. He was a historian and archaeologist who specialized in all things Deadwood, and he was the foremost expert when it comes to Al Swearingen. I keep saying was because sadly Jerry Bryant passed away in 2015. I strongly recommend you check out his book Al Swearingen, Manifest Evil in the Gym Theater. Link in the show notes. I did lean heavily upon it while researching this episode, and Mr. Bryant also penned the book Deadwood Saints and Sinners, which I have not yet read, but it's on my list. A list that, by this point, is several miles long. Now, as I'm sure you know, Deadwood was a pretty wild town back in the day, and the gym theater, although splendidly furnished and abounding in exotic talents, did gain a reputation as being a rather rough joint. Gunshots were often traded in the saloon's interior, even among the working gals. Stabbings were not unheard of, and drunken brawls were the norm. One amusing incident saw a night watchman passing the gym and noticing so much broken glass at first glance that he assumed there had been a hailstorm. Truth was, it was just another brawl. Hearing the noise and peeking inside, he saw at least a hundred men and women all going at it swinging fists, with another couple of hundred egging them on. Is that story true? Who knows? Could it be true? Absolutely. Now, part of the reason the gym and Deadwood as a whole was so violent was due to there being no established law enforcement, at least not at its founding. The mining camp was, for quite a long time, an illegal town. Remember, they were not allowed to be there. By treaty, this was Lakota land, and the U.S. courts, lawmen included, had zero jurisdiction. As such, the only law administered on the streets of Deadwood was what you and your buddies could enforce for yourselves. 
That said, there's always going to be rules of some sort, right? Even if there was a total societal collapse, little pockets of civilization would invent new laws and work out ways to enforce some modicum of stability. No different there in Deadwood. The citizens quickly organized to appoint various administrative positions and, although not technically legal, weren't long before Deadwood even had an official lawman, the legendary Seth Bullock. Now, Bullock was notoriously hard on crime, but he would often turn a blind eye to Swearingen's doings there at the gym. Story goes that there was an imaginary line, and so long as Al kept his antics on his side of town, there'd be no problems. Once again, is this true, or just another Old West tall tale? I don't know. Bullock and Swearingen had their quarrels, but the fact of the matter is there would still be plenty of nefarious deeds occurring under Sheriff Bullock's short watch such as Al's wife Nettie getting beaten black and blue. Worth noting that she did finally get fed up with Al Swearingen's bullshit and leave in May of 1878. A short reunion saw her leave again, and by late December 1879, Nettie was done for good after being yet again beaten to a bloody pulp. With all this in mind, I'm sure you can imagine a guy like Al Swearingen had enemies. Whether they be angry customers or just the competition, more than a few folks were caught in the act of trying to torch the gym on more than one occasion. So much so, the Swearingen even employed the local Chinese to help guard his place around the clock. The good times and the big money would not last forever, though. During the gold rush, Deadwood boasted a population of over 10,000. By 1880, that number dwindled to just shy of 4,000. And by 1890, there were only around 2,400 souls who called Deadwood home. Not one to just call it quits, Al did attempt to keep up with the times, and he even opened up a roller skating ring there in Deadwood for a bit in 1885. I shit you not, this is not one of my stories I'm making up. A roller skating ring. And man, I really wish they had shown that in the Deadwood movie. I can see it now. W. Earl Brown as Dan Doherty, just menacingly circling the rink in his skates, knife between his teeth. My buddy William Sanderson is E.B. Farnham being shoved around by a bunch of kids as he curses them for the little bastards they are. And then you'd have Al just standing there in the shadows, a little toothpick in his mouth as he plots out the various ways he can fleece the roller skaters. Maybe even have Trixie giving hand jobs in the corner. I don't know. HBO, if you're listening, I am available for writing work. Uh, Josh at WildWestExtra.com. January of the following year, 1886, Al and his siblings got together to bring their aunt slash stepmother to court. Al's daddy Daniel finally passed away without a will, and the kids were suing to keep his home-wrecking wife from getting everything. Although they were able to get some of the money, Al's stepmom would ultimately keep the family farm. In 1888, the gym finally got electricity. No big surprise, considering that Deadwood had citywide telephone service as early as the fall of 1878. Swearingen would have a daughter in September of 1886 named Lenore, but her fate is lost to history. Lenore would be Al's only known child, and we have no idea when or how she died. The mother was Odelia Turgeon, whom Al finally made an honest woman of in the summer of 1889, three years following the birth of Lenore. The marriage would last all of five months before, according to the Deadwood Times, quote, Al Swearingen and wife kicked up a rumpus of unusual proportions at their celebrated Main Street Resort Saturday morning, in which the wife was choked, repeatedly struck, and her life threatened. The police were called in, but not until the fight had ceased. On yesterday, Miss Swearingen went before Justice Hall and obtained a warrant, but her husband, apprehending such proceedings, had skipped, end quote. Al would return about a week later, plead guilty to a simple drunk and disorderly, and pay the $15 fine. 
As for Odelia, she dropped all charges. Mrs. Swearingen possibly had a miscarriage in January of 1890, as doctors were summoned to treat her for a hemorrhage, but I suppose it's possible she was just bleeding due to another one of Al's vicious beatings. That following July, the couple would divorce after Al brought accusations of adultery against Odelia. It seems that one of her alleged lovers was Tom Miller, the former owner of the Bella Union. And as it turns out, this would be the least of Swearingen's worries. South Dakota passed a statewide prohibition in May of 1889 that made all manufacturing and selling of alcohol illegal, which, by the way, is something I will never understand. We did a nationwide ban of alcohol here in the United States in the 1920s, and we got the mafia. We banned narcotics, and we got the cartels. Meanwhile, the politicians and criminals all get rich, and the poor folks go to jail. Not that anybody asked me, of course. The South Dakota Prohibition Law would be voted away five years later, and the gym did remain open the entire time, partly by rebranding itself as a soft drink parlor. <laughs> of course, right? Something tells me that not only could you still get drunker than Cooter Brown there at the gym, even during Prohibition, but quite a few inspectors got their palms greased as well. Swearingen wasn't simply going to let a pesky law put him out of business. Maybe. As formidable as Al was, it does appear that this was around the time he began to slip. A male customer broke his nose in October of 1890, and a female did the same the following month. Swearingen also fell victim to a series of lawsuits. Imagine that, stalwart citizens such as he being dragged to court. Turns out old Swearingen was borrowing quite a bit of money, and when his creditors came to collect, he would just flat out refuse to pay them. More lawsuits saw to Al borrowing even more money, getting himself further into debt, which is crazy considering the amount he was earning back in Deadwood's boom. Makes you wonder how he spent it all. At one point, even all the furnishings inside of the gym were confiscated in lieu of debt payments. And it does appear that at some point around 1893, Al Swearingen lost total control of the gym variety theater. I assume on account of all that litigation. He would be kept on as manager and, oddly enough, was occasionally still referred to as the proprietor by the new owners. And for about the next decade, Al would routinely step down as manager, only to return. I'm thinking maybe this was a ruse, sort of a legal maneuvering to stop anybody from seizing even more of the gym's assets, but I don't know. What's clear is that Swearingen continued to get sued by damn near everybody, and eventually, by 1897, the gym was shut down for two whole years. It appears to have been bought by a guy named Jonathan Swift, and then leased to the firm of Riley and Carr, who made plans for a big grand opening on December 19, 1899. As such, Mr. Riley worked all throughout the night of the 18th, getting the place ready for the big day, before leaving on the morning of the opening at around 5 a.m. Around 15 minutes or so later, on what was reported as a windless night, onlookers claimed to have seen flames burst from several interior locations within the gym simultaneously. Luckily, the fire was contained to just the gym, but the Variety Theater was a total loss. By that evening, all that remained were bits of a stone foundation, and that was it. The gym would not be rebuilt. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm picking up on some red flags. I don't think it's a wild assumption to conclude that this fire was not an accident. Question is, who started it? One of Al's enemies, perhaps? After all, we know for a fact there were past arson attempts. Or was it Al? I mean, he was no longer the legal owner. Maybe he was just bitter at losing his place. I don't know. I was able to verify that the owner, Jonathan Swift, did not have insurance on the gym, so I think that eliminates fraud. To this day, it remains an unsolved mystery. 
Nobody knows who or what caused that final fire at the gym saloon. Swearingen would end up leaving Deadwood about two months later. He disappeared until the fall of 1903, and when he re-emerged, he claimed to have been in Dawson City, Alaska, taking part in the Klondike Gold Rush. He told folks around Deadwood that he had never felt better and that he was back for good. Turns out this would not be the case. Al left shortly thereafter and headed south to Denver, where he began working on quote-unquote mining interests. I don't know if he had his own claim down there near the Mile High City or if he had truly fell on hard times and was just employed by someone else. Each day in Denver, Al would ride the streetcars from his residence to the outskirts of town for work, and each day he'd take the same streetcars home. At least he did until November 15, 1904. Just a little over a year after reappearing in Deadwood, the then 59-year-old Al Swearingen was found dead beside the streetcar tracks his head apparently on the receiving end of some type of blunt force trauma. Now, if you're not familiar, these streetcars, also referred to as trolleys or trams, were just kind of public transit vehicles that travel on rails. Not normal train tracks, but more like flat rails on already existing streets. Sort of the precursor to the light rail systems in a lot of your bigger cities. And I think even in some places like San Francisco, they still have actual streetcars. If you've ever seen John Wayne's The Shootist, there's a couple of scenes where he's riding in the streetcar with that damn pillow that he stole out of the whorehouse in Creed. Now, some of these trolleys were steam-powered. Others were cable cars, which were driven by sunken cables, which the trams latched onto for propulsion. But by the time Swearingen arrived in Denver, they had all become fully electric, powered by overhead wires, at least there in Denver. Now, I bring all this up because, for a very long time, the story went that Swearingen was killed while attempted to hop onto a freight train outside of town, that he died penniless, just a broke transient, riding the rails. According to researcher Jerry Bryant, this is incorrect. Mr. Bryant was able to uncover an article published in the newspaper there in Oskaloosa, Iowa, Al's hometown, shortly after his death. It reads that Al was found, quote, lying between a couple of tracks in a suburb of Denver, and a wound was found on his head showing that he had been struck heavily by some large object. The deceased was working in some mining interests near Denver, and he was accustomed to going to and from the city on streetcars that run near his place. It is supposed that he was attempting to board a moving car and was struck on the head by some part of the car. The body was thrown to the side of the car, where it was found sometime after death by some track workers going to their work. The hat of the man was found 70 feet from where the body lay. The man might have fallen from the car as it was moving swiftly and have sustained the same injuries. In addition to the cut on the forehead, there were numerous scratches on the side of his face. End of quote. And man, oh man, am I glad that journalists have learned how to write a little bit better than they did back in those days. That was painful to read. But all right, so the cause of death still isn't certain, right? The article theorizes that Al was either struck by the rail car as he attempted to board it or that he fell off and bashed his head open. But at least by this account, we know that it was a streetcar and not an actual choo-choo train. And that Al was attempting to head to work as opposed to hopping the rails like a damn hobo. That said, his burial record does list his cause of death as a railroad accident. Either way, Al was dead, and many people do not believe it was actually an accident. Even I'm a little skeptical. Mostly because what happened to Al's twin brother, Lemuel. Less than two months before Swearingen's death, Lemuel was shot in the head four times as he left his butcher shop there in Oskaloosa just a little after midnight. And believe it or not, he survived. One bullet grazed the back of his skull, another skimmed the bridge of his nose, yet another his temple, and the fourth just grazed the side of his head. 
I'm not sure what the caliber was, but I hope that lucky bastard went and bought himself a lottery ticket the next day. Now here's the catch. Lemuel had $200 on him, but the money was left unmolested, leading many to believe that this was not a robbery. I suppose the trigger man may have been an amateur and just panicked at the last moment, running off before he could pill for Lemuel's pockets, but I don't know. Sounds to me like a hit. And the fact that Al and Lemuel were twins makes me wonder if maybe whoever shot Lemuel thought they was dropping that hammer on Al. Case of misidentification, maybe. And then, of course, a few weeks later, in theory, whoever it was that shot Lemuel caught up with Swearingen there in Denver, and that was that. This is purely speculation on my part, but considering Al's shady past, how many people he owed money to, how many lives he ruined, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to think that his death and Lemuel's attempted murder are connected. Once again, want to be clear here, there is no historical evidence or proof that Al Swearingen was murdered. His death may have just really been an accident. Now, Lemuel would recover and live for another six years, but he would ultimately succumb to further violence. In the summer of 1910, two dogs began fighting near his meat shop, and Swearingen became angered as he witnessed one of the dog's owners kicking the other dog. He intervened, words were exchanged, and Lemuel knocked the offending kicker on his ass, a much younger man named Fisher. Not long after, Fisher would confront Lemuel, words were once again exchanged, and this time it was the younger man who got the upper hand. Fisher struck first, knocking Lemuel to the pavement, and then commenced to put the boots to him. And well... Human head can only take so many well-placed kicks. The 65-year-old Lemuel Swearingen would remain semi-conscious for about a week before passing away. Now, just a word of caution and yet another example as to why you should double-check everything you see on the internet. If you search for Al Swearingen on the website findagrave.com, not only does it show a picture that's not him, but it also lists his place of burial as the County Home Cemetery in Lytton, Iowa, about nine miles northwest of Oskaloosa. This is incorrect. Per the burial records, Swearingen was laid to rest at the Forest Cemetery right there in Oskaloosa in Section 21, Lot 14. There was never a headstone, and as far as I know, there still is not a headstone. But at least you know the general area to look if you want to go pay your respects. Unfortunately, nobody has been able to locate an obituary from the town of Deadwood, if one even ever existed. But I know me personally, I'd be curious as to what Al's former neighbors and employees would have thought upon hearing of his passing. We do, however, know what was written of the gym theater following the final fire in 1899. One local paper eulogized Al's saloon as a place of iniquity, shame, and wretchedness, where lives were wrecked, fortune sacrificed, esteem forfeited, and vice unhindered. And yeah, I think that's a fitting eulogy for Al Swearingen as well. Obviously, you can still visit Deadwood, I know I've got a few listeners who live there and sing its praises, and I can't wait to make the pilgrimage one day myself. Just not during Sturgis. I uh, think I'd rather visit when things are a little quieter and less crowded. It's my understanding that you'll find the Mineral Palace Hotel where the gym once stood, on Deadwood's historic Main Street, very, very close to where the number 10 saloon once was, where Wild Bill was dealt that final hand. And yeah, I reckon that's all I've got on Al Swearingen in the gym saloon. I did receive a very nice email from listener Donovan recently, along with a question. Donovan wrote, quote, I just watched your series on Jim Bridger. Loved it. Was wondering if you have ever heard that song John Horton wrote about him. If so, how accurate is it? End of quote. And yeah, uh, first of all, thank you. But yes, I have absolutely heard the song Jim Bridger by Johnny Horton. And I do love me some Johnny Horton. 
It just doesn't get no better than the Battle of New Orleans, far as I'm concerned. As for the song about Jim Bridger, it is a very catchy tune. Uh, I assume when you ask about the accuracy, you're referring to the line that goes, he spoke to General Custer and said, listen, yellow hair. The Sioux are a great nation, so treat them fair and square. Sit in on their war cancels, don't laugh away their pride. But Custer didn't listen, and at Little Bighorn, Custer died. I'm not really sure that Bridger and Custer knew each other. Uh, I know that when Jim was scouting up there in Wyoming and Montana, Custer, I believe, was mostly down in Kansas and Indian Territory. And of course, Bridger would stop working for the military altogether about eight or nine years before the Battle of Little Bighorn took place. So yeah, probably not accurate, but I'm sure the sentiment is. More than likely, Bridger would have warned Custer about kicking that particular hornet's nest, and more than likely, Custer would have paid him no mind. But thanks for that message, Donovan. Hope you and your reef are doing well. And thanks to everybody who's been writing in, leaving comments and reviews. Big shout out to everybody on Patreon, everyone supporting the cause via Buy Me a Coffee. If you'd like to do the same, $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra goes a long way to turning the Wild West extravaganza into a full-time gig. And in return, you'll get ad-free content as well as access to the entire back catalog. All those early episodes that are no longer available to all the hoopleheads. If you're more of a one-time sort of guy or gal, you can always head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West and buy me a coffee. I like mine black, like my soul. Links to both of these in the show notes, link to Jerry Bryant's book on Al Swearingen, and a link to my newsletter where I recently wrote of a very capable Western lawman who you've probably never heard of, who just so happened to have a very notorious brother that you've definitely heard of. Trust me, this is one crazy-ass story, and it'll give you something to talk about down there at the VFW. You can find that article by clicking on the link that says Newsletter. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Till next time, try not to engage in any human trafficking. Be careful around those trolleys, and remember, Mr. Wu's pigs are always hungry. Cocksucker. Adios. Adios.